I've gotten so into baths and it's all because of Faye. Like Faye opened the door to self-care for me. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where the women who are cut out of the made-for-TV movies get to have a starring role. Because uh, I've been complaining about the lack of Paula in the Ryan Murphy show to yes, you. Yes, she's only in two <laughs> scenes. So I might be wrong, but I counted the number of lines she has, and I think it's okay. two lines. And maybe okay. she's in more scenes than that not talking. Like, I have okay. not done a frame-by-frame analysis, but... <laughs> very happy that we are are coming and doing this approach and that we are mm-hmm. going to talk about Paula Barbieri. Yeah. Just as much as as history seems to require, which I think is a lot. <laughs> I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm a writer at work on a book on the satanic panic. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about. And we have tote bags and shirts now that say if Marsha Clark could get through 1995, then I can get through this day. And yes. I think they are very cute. And today we are talking about Paula Barbieri again. Mm-hmm. Are you excited to return to Paula? Yes. I want to know what happens to the Bronco Chase. I feel like I almost want it. Well, we'll get to it. <laughs> I'm like slightly sad that we're going to get to the Bronco Chase because it's been looming in the distance for so long. We don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So where are we? Where are we in time? Where do we where do we pick up with Paula? I want to start by asking you, we talked about Paula a couple weeks ago. Yes. Where is she at the moment that we're returning to her? She was dating OJ for some period of time before the murders. She broke up with him the morning of the murders. She then found out that his ex-wife, who she perceived herself to be kind of in competition with, had been murdered. She sees that OJ is wounded and sad. She perceives him as a victim of this crime as well, that he's now lost someone who's really important to him. Mm -hmm. She decides to, instead of continuing with the breakup that she had initiated, she kind of calls a mulligan and goes to him and essentially moves in with him in Robert Shapiro's house. He calls a mulligan and she allows it. Right. And so she has kind of taken on this caretaker role of, I'm really scared that he's going to kill himself. I'm really Mm -hmm. scared that he's taking medications. He's barely sort of lucid and he needs my help. And so that seems to be her motivation for Mm -hmm. doing this so far. Yeah. But because she was cut out of the Ryan Murphy show, I have no idea where this story goes. (laughs) So we we left off with O.J. Simpson's possibly suicide note being read aloud on television after O.J. has disappeared from Robert Kardashian's house. Yes, David Schwimmer. And then in her book... The other woman, right after she talks about that, Paula writes, most poignant of all was when OJ wrote how he'd done, quote, most of the right things. So why do I end up like this? I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. But that's his bullshit persecution complex. Well, I mean, he's right. People will look and point, right? Yes. Like, that's what they do when you've been accused of murdering someone. He is right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it does make sense to to focus on yourself in, in a suicide note, if that's what I mean, this is. I mean, yeah. fair. I think that this is actually a, a moment of clarity from him in a way where he's, yeah. if, he, if he's saying that he's going to go kill himself now, mm. then he's saying essentially that I can't stand to not be loved anymore. Like the public has loved me for my entire <sighs> adult life. And after this, they can't. And I can't stand that. And I think that that's true. I mean, that's like deeply narcissistic, too, because what he should be sad about is that the love of his life just died. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, should be sad about is like a is a is a loaded phrase. But it seems like 
this was a really important person in your life. And to be focusing on yourself just seems like bad and weird. You know what I think is interesting? And I've, maybe I've been thinking about this lately is that we tend to use the word narcissist as like a value judgment in some way. It's like that person's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. And like, do you think that narcissists are narcissists on purpose? Because I don't. Right. Like, Narcissus died because he couldn't stop staring at his own reflection. Right. Like, people don't want to die while staring at reflections of themselves. Mm. I think if we're able to use the term narcissist to just mean, like, wow, like, this person, like, this kind of self-own that he's offering <laughs> us in this note of, like, the public has always loved me. I've always been the fastest boy. Yeah. And... <laughs> That was his real love, really, was like the way that the public allowed him to feel about himself and hmm. something that, that Paula mentions. They would often just like snag a little time together in an airport because he would be flying off to golf for Hertz or whatever, and she would be flying mm -hmm. off to do modeling gigs. And so they would mm -hmm. like get together for a meal or coffee or something in some airport somewhere. Mm -hmm. She tells a story where they're like running for him to catch a flight and a fan wants an autograph and he's like, run alongside me and I'll autograph stuff for you. Oh, wow. He, I think he has no real idea of what it's like to be able to wake up in the morning and be like, I'm proud of the person I am. I'm like, I'm a good husband and I'm a good dad. And, and I mm -hmm. had a good golf game this morning and I feel good about that. Like that's so foreign to him. You know, he never learned how to do that. And I think this means that he just has no coping technique at this point. So you think that's that sort of sense of devastation and oblivion is what motivates him to get in the Bronco that day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think he had this sense of like, well, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Right, right. So Paula is watching all of this on CNN. And we must remind you that it's been only five days since she got on a plane <laughs> to Las Vegas thinking like, I just broke up with my yeah, boyfriend yeah. and I've ended this garbage fire of a relationship and I'm moving on and things are great and I feel strong and healthy and alive. Yeah. And Michael Bolton is going to touch my cheek. And Michael Bolton's going to touch my cheek and we're going to sing on a mountain together probably because that mm -hmm. seems to be what he does based on his videos. And, mm -hmm. you know, and in another part of the city, Marsha Clark is like, my desk is like almost clean. And I just filed for <laughs> divorce from Gordon. <laughs> so it's June 17th. Paul is watching CNN listening to OJ's letter and his farewell to her. And it gets to the point where She's hearing the part of OJ's letter about his relationship with Nicole mm. and just feeling just hurt yeah. <laughs> about how Nicole is still the one who matters most to him. Yeah, she's still plan B. Yeah. And so she writes, when the letter talked about Nicole, it really hurt me to hear the obvious that OJ still loved her and that he'd hoped they'd have a future. But I couldn't think about that. Not now. When you're in denial, you have to be there all the way. An hour later, CNN broke into Larry King with a shot of San Diego Freeway, northbound. I gaped at the sight of AC's white Bronco rolling down the middle of the road with a dozen or more squad cars in slow pursuit. Wait, it's AC's Bronco? I thought OJ had a Bronco. OJ has a white Bronco. AC also has a white Bronco. Okay. And Paula has a white Bronco. Oh, wow. So these were like the Ugg boots of 1994. <laughs> And Paula writes, OJ was in the backseat, the newsman said. He was alive. Ecstatic at that simple fact, I began to piece together what might have happened. Though the district attorney would try to suggest otherwise, there had been no conspiracy at Kardashian's house. Given the sedatives he was taking and the despair that had swamped him, OJ lacked the harder mind for any escape. And in the margin, I've written, sure. <laughs> but when he and AC saw how easy it was for Tom and me to drive off, it probably occurred to him that they could do the same. <laughs> Paula is finding a way to blame herself for OJ yeah. being taken into custody. Like, yeah. as a, a person with a history of like codependency 
and blaming myself for stuff that I really shouldn't blame myself for. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. I'm impressed by her yeah. codependent abilities. Like, she, this is like Olympic gold medal <laughs> self blame. We are all Paula. It's just amazing. Like, she's sitting there. She's like, I'm so glad you're still alive. Thank God. And it's my fault. And if you hadn't seen me yeah. get away from Robert Kardashian's house so easily, then you wouldn't have tried it. And it's because right. you learned by watching me. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> so the logistics of this are. Yeah. He left Robert Shapiro's house. Shapiro thought that he was turning himself in and that AC was driving him to Parker no, no, Center? No, what? no. Okay. Bob Shapiro is not that stupid. Okay. Bob Shapiro basically was going to take OJ in. He had mm -hmm. kind of been in talks with the LAPD. He was like, trust me, listen to me. Have you ever had any reason not to trust me? We've been working together for a long time. I'm a celebrity lawyer. And then as when we record this show... They're like, okay, are you going to bring OJ in? We need him in like right now. And Bob Shapiro is like, ah, oh, a little more time. I just need a little more time. <laughs> it's as Bob Shapiro is planning to take him in and OJ and AC just like bounce. Do we have any sense of what his plan was? What OJ's plan was? Yeah, because he wasn't getting in the car by himself to kill himself, right? Mm -hmm. He was getting in the car with AC driving, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, AC is driving. So yeah, what is your sense of what his actual strategy was with this. So his story is that his plan was to go to Nicole's grave and kill okay. himself there. Oh, okay. and he has a gun in the car. Okay. And at various points, he's holding a gun to his head mm -hmm. in the back of the car as AC is right. driving. They reach the cemetery and they realize the police are there. Oh, and okay. he says they instead go to an orange grove Okay. and AC gets out of the truck and OJ says that he takes the gun out, but AC came back before he could use it. And then they got back in the Bronco. So AC doesn't know about this plan, I guess, obviously. Well, he knows that OJ has a gun. Does he know that he's like driving OJ to the gravesite to kill himself? Or do we not know? I don't think we can know that. Because he's still alive, right? He's still he's still around. He gives interviews. I'm, I guess he must have written a book. No, he didn't write a book. He's one of the few people who did not write a book. Interesting. Okay. AC actually stayed pretty quiet. Hmm. Here's what I think if I were AC Cowlings. So my, my best friend is distraught. He's writing what is potentially a suicide note. We're crying mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. in Robert Kardashian's house about how mm -hmm. we were supposed to grow old together. According yeah. to Paula, there is this general sense of like, this is it. Also, mm. you know, AC has a, a relationship with OJ that's similar to the relationship a lot of men have had with OJ, which is that they're kind of, they're, he's the alpha. Yeah. He decides what they do. He decides where they go. Like mm. if he gets a car, then you get a car that looks like his. Mm. I can see feeling the kind of loyalty to my friend OJ where I'm like, either I don't know what you're doing or mm. I know that you're intent on killing yourself. And maybe I want to help you with that. Like, maybe I feel like that is what you truly need. And I have the degree of loyalty to you that like, I want to help you do Like, I don't know. Yeah. People often do not know their motivations when they are doing stuff. It's yeah, only afterwards. I don't afterwards. think OJ was very aware of what emotions he was having yeah. at what time. I mean, yeah. This is another thing, right? That like we have, I think we really need to work on cultural literacy around abusive behavior because there's, mm. if you are an abusive partner or the abusive party in a relationship, like to me, that correlates much more strongly with a lack of control over your behavior and a lack of awareness of your emotions yeah. than being some yeah. kind of like, now I've decided that I want to hurt you and I'm 
aware of all of my feelings and this is a rational decision I've made. It's the criminal mastermind thing. Yeah, we want everyone to be a mastermind. And I think a mastermind is just a board game. (laughs) Freedom's just another (laughs) word for nothing left to lose and mastermind's just a board game from the 80s. (laughs) And then there's debate that maybe he was fleeing to Mexico because he did have like $8,000 in the car with him. Oh, okay. So in the run of his life, Jeffrey Tubin writes, the LAPD had put out an all points bulletin for Al Cowlings right around the time of the press conference at 2 p.m. Around that time, Van Adder Lang and their colleagues put in their first calls to the many police departments whose jurisdictions abut that of the LAPD. Mm-hmm. But because the police had never seized Simpson's passport, the cops had to cast an even wider net. They alerted the U.S. Border Patrol, as well as the airlines, the U.S. Customs Service, and the wow. Mexican Judicial Police. Wow. Not surprisingly, perhaps, given the vast public interest in the case, it was the broadcast announcement, not the law enforcement effort, that produced almost immediate results. Oh, right. Chris Thomas had been watching television at home in Mission Viejo when he learned Simpson was on the run. At 6.25 p.m., he and his girlfriend, Kathy Ferrigno, were heading north on Interstate 5, the Santa Ana Freeway, on their way to a weekend of camping. They had been joking about OJ's disappearance, studying in a half-hearted way the cars coming toward them, seeing if Simpson might be among them on his way to Mexico. After a few minutes of this, Ferrigno looked into the passenger side rearview mirror and started saying, Oh my God, Chris, Chris, Chris. Thomas slowed down and in a moment Ferrigno was face to face with Al Cowlings. When he noticed that she was staring at him, Cowlings glared at her. Their location at that moment was about 80 miles south of Kardashian's house in Encino. They were about a five minute drive from the gravesite of Nicole Brown Simpson. The Bronco was heading north, that is back toward Los Angeles and away from the Mexican border. So that corroborates... OJ's story that he went to the grave, saw the cops, and then turned around. Yes. That's interesting that from day one, it's like the the media is playing a hugely important role in not only documenting this case, but in some ways kind of solving it or changing it, that they're putting out these big bulletins. Oh, yeah. I mean, from the beginning, this is a viewers at home. What do you think? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. a trial. Tubin writes, when he was booked at the police station, Cowlings had $8,750 in cash in his pockets. And in what appeared to be Simpson's travel bag, they found OJ's passport and a plastic bag that contained a fake goatee, a fake mustache, a bottle of makeup (laughs) adhesive remover, and three receipts from Cinema Secrets Beauty Supply dated May 27th, 1994. The officers also found a fully loaded Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum blue steel handgun. It Mm. was registered to Lieutenant Earl Pacinger, yet another of Simpson's friends on the LAPD. Hmm. About five years earlier, at a time when Pacinger was providing security for OJ, the lieutenant had bought his client the gun. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? It's also interesting for the defense theory that it's all an LAPD frame job when (laughs) he has a lot of buddies on the LAPD. I cannot imagine... Having a client who was cozier with the police. Yeah. OJ's friend Ron Ship talks about he would bring over other police officers to OJ's house and like not tell them whose house they were going to. And then like, oh, you know, right. OJ would open the door and their faces would light up. You know, he's like hmm. Santa to them. Hmm. It's rare for anyone to be that popular with police officers. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, 
<laughs> but what do you huh. make of the fact that he has a fake goatee and a fake mustache and stuff? I just think he's seen, he's seen like the Harrison Ford version of The Fugitive too many times <laughs> where it's like, oh, all God. I need to do is go into like a rest up bathroom and like dye my hair and then nobody will recognize me. Like the, like the Clark Kent version of a disguise where like this extremely famous person puts on a pair of glasses and then it's like, who are you? Right. I mean, if you're a celebrity at that time, the size of OJ, it's not clear to me that like a goatee is going to do it, buddy. People will be like, oh, it's OJ Simpson and he has a goatee. Again, like we're not dealing with like criminal mastermind here. Yeah, that's important. I, how many criminal masterminds are there actually? There are three. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what he claims later, there's like many flavors of OJ lies. And this is one where you're like, OJ, like, were you even trying with this one? <laughs> what he says is that that's for, you know, oh, if I don't want to be recognized by the public, like when I take my kids to Disneyland, like that's what that's for. <laughs> that That's like him saying like, well, you know, I, I wanted to go to the buffet, but not eat anything. Yeah. Because yeah, I yeah. hate <laughs> receiving like the one true nutrient that my soul craves right. all day long. It's like, right. Okay, sure. <laughs> also, if you will permit me to channel Nicole for a second, uh -huh. when the fuck did OJ ever take his kids to Disneyland? He doesn't seem like he's that kind of parent. Right. He's showing up late for their recitals and skipping their confirmations. Good point. So what? what's Paula doing now? I mean, at the time that Chase is happening, she's just watching on CNN helplessly. Mm -hmm. But what she says OJ tells her later, because mm -hmm. he says at his civil trial that they go to an orange grove, he's going to kill himself, but then AC comes back before he can use the gun. OJ apparently has a the gun wrapped up in a towel, and Paula writes, The full story is even more chilling. I took the gun and put it in my mouth, OJ told me. I pulled the trigger, and the towel jammed the trigger. Whoa! What do you think about that? Because this book contains dozens of instances of OJ lying to Paula. And this yeah. is something where I feel like this doesn't seem plausible or implausible to me. Like, I really don't know. Yeah, it's like watching The Usual Suspects or something. <laughs> it's like at the end, you're like, I don't know what of that happened and what didn't. I can see this being a play for sympathy, which he definitely needs her for. Oh, yeah. But I can also see it being true. Like, he's clear. He's so, I mean, the way that he beat Nicole was just like the the horrific nature of those beatings to me is like, this is someone who was not in control of himself. Yeah. And yet also you're like, was his ego so powerful that it didn't want to let itself die? Right. I guess the question is like, does his narcissism make him more or less likely to actually attempt suicide? And I don't know. Right. And I don't know if we could make that assessment. It's also interesting that whenever you hear these stories, the lens you want to apply to them is this makes sense or this doesn't make sense where, yeah. you know, why would it prevent you from committing suicide if your friend comes back to the car? Like your friend is going to find out two seconds later that you killed yourself. So like, why hmm. does it matter that AC can see you? But then on the other hand, people kill themselves or don't kill themselves for all kinds of reasons. Like things that happen do not make sense. Yes. And, and we weren't there. Yeah. But so Paula doesn't know any of this yet. All she knows is that OJ's on TV, she's mm -hmm. watching it, and she's mm -hmm. worried about him, mm -hmm. right? That's about it. Yeah, she is sitting there watching this happening on TV, the same as the rest of America, mm. and all those people who are trying to watch basketball all the time. Yes. She writes, I was desperate for the Bronco to pull over, for OJ to step out. I think I shared everyone's thoughts. Just let this not be a catastrophe. Mm. I checked for messages at my home phone. With one eye on the television, I heard several disconnects. Then a dazed but familiar voice. Paula, are you there? 
Of all the unreal moments I'd experienced, <gasps> that one might have been the most bizarre. To hear OJ's disembodied voice as I watched his voiceless presence on TV. Whoa. Passing waves of cheering onlookers. So he's drunk dialing Paula again. He's doing it while he's in the car. <laughs> why, do you, why do you think people only make phone calls when they're drunk? Because <laughs> you're a millennial? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you call me. <laughs> I mean, I guess I should say like emotionally drunk dialing. He's feeling things and he's calling her. By your standard, I don't think OJ has made a calm phone call in his life, though. That's I true. mean, he's because this is just how he calls people. Right. Yeah, he's reaching out to her, basically. He's like, Paula, yeah. Paula, Paula, help me. Yeah. This is also hours after he's like sent her away and given her, you know, he's tried to do his best Michael yeah. Bolton, too. He has yeah. attempted to touch her cheek softly and send her right. on her way. And right. he has changed his tune after a few hours it seems in keeping with his struggle with impulse control <sighs> yeah i mean i i was thinking in terms of just oj and paula's relationship generally that like they seem to share this where mm. she will call things off he will start calling her and then like the sound of his voice will kind of sway her and hmm. they will start things up again or, you hmm. know, he will try and send her away, but then he won't be, you know, it's like each of them is on a chain and they can right. like, you know, start running, but then they get to the end of it and it snaps and they come back to each hmm. other. Hmm. And Paula writes, I wanted more than anything to call OJ back, but I lacked AC's cellular phone number. Which is such a 1997 phrase, cellular phone number. Yeah. The truth was OJ was calling from his own cell phone, but that possibility never dawned on me. I could do only what millions of others were doing, watch and pray. Star 69. Why didn't she star 69? We had that technology. So many rabbit holes here. Mm. And this is, to me, a very revealing moment. She writes, as the Bronco swung west on the 91 freeway, then north on the 405, I found myself melting into the truck's back seat. I felt OJ's fear and confusion, his sense of being hunted. I had to hold on to every bit of my focus. If I faltered for even a second... I was sure OJ would die. Whoa. She's a witch. Hmm. I found myself melting into the truck's backseat. Like, she literally feels that she is, like, astrally projecting herself yeah. into the Bronco and keeping him alive. Like, she's engaging in the kind of magical thinking. Yeah. Like, she's responsible yeah. for keeping him from killing himself. It's very, like, abuse, abuser type of dynamic, right? Where it's like... It's not that I flew off the handle and beat you. It's that you made me do it by whatever tiny mm. little slight that I've invented. Yeah. And she buys that. Yeah. And she's making herself responsible for everything. I mean, this is this is all OJ doing it. And it's her fault that Nicole is dead. Like yeah. her self-blame runs so deep that with one hand, she's denying that he could have killed anyone and with i don't know how you deny things with your hands in one breath <laughs> she's denying that he could have killed anyone and in the other it's you know but it, it's still her fault it's still her fault that nicole is dead yeah and if he kills himself that's also her fault mm. what is paula not blaming herself for yeah so she's melting into the back seat and she writes and so I shushed all my questions aside. I locked my forbidden doubts away, triple bolted the safe. I had lain next to this man in our most private hours. I shared my secrets and my life. I had never stopped loving him, and good times are hard. How could I have loved a murderer? I couldn't conceive of it. Not if I was to give OJ the absolute loyalty he needed. Not if I was to stay sane. From that point on, through all that was to follow over the next 16 months... I never doubted OJ again. Wait, 
We need to do like one of those little if P then Q type of maps for the yes. logic here. <laughs> this is like an LSAT question, right? Yeah. <laughs> because is she honestly, do you think that she's honestly saying if I love him, then he can't be a murderer? She's in what the Greeks call a dilemma, <laughs> right? Where, which means you're literally between the two horns, right? Mm. So in what might have been the trial of the century in Homer, Orestes is in a position where he has to avenge his father's murder by killing the person who killed his father. Mm-hmm. But the person who killed his father is his mother. Okay. Which she does because Agamemnon sacrificed their daughter earlier. It's a whole big thing. Right. But you have a moral rule telling you to kill someone and you have a moral rule telling you that it's forbidden to kill someone. Yes. And Orestes is, in some versions, saved from this. The gods literally intervene and they're like, we know we put you in an impossible position and we're just going to sort of wipe this away. Hmm. Paula Barbieri is in, is in an Orestes kind of a place right now because... According to kind of her moral universe, like the kind of laws that she lives by, she has to love O.J. Simpson. She has to have absolute loyalty to him because he's in pain and he is in jail and the world is against him and he's going to trial. Hmm. But she also can't love a murderer. She can't have loved a murderer, but she has to love him. So he can't be a murderer. He just can't. Right. That's what I think she's saying. I mean, when this happens to a normal person who doesn't have the God's help, it's called being placed under citizens' arrestees. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm Did sorry. you just think that up? <laughs> I, I've been sitting on that for like three minutes. <laughs> I was waiting for a tiny pause so I could say it. It wasn't the most appropriate place to say it. No, but I really like the citizens' arrestees. I got it Oh, my goodness. Sorry. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think it's like that's the place that she's talked herself into being. Mm-hmm. She's, in a way, like created this dilemma for herself in a way. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about let's talk about what made Paula Paula. What, what do we know about Paula's life pre-OJ so far? Can you kind of remind us of, of our knowledge to this point? So I love doing these super duper zoom in episodes and returning mm-hmm. to the same people over and over again, because oftentimes when I'm editing the show, I realize something that I forgot to sort of follow up on. Hmm. And one of the things in Paula episode one that has stuck with me is that they mention in, I think it was in that terrible review where they referred to her Nicole-like inability to leave OJ, mm-hmm. where they basically said like she was abused as a kid. And maybe that's why she couldn't leave OJ as a sort of like blaming her kind of way. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that is part of the dynamic here that she grew up in an abusive home? I'm so glad you're asking me that. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. We're just going to talk about Paula's life pre-OJ. And I feel, you know, to kind of spoil this for you a little bit, that you will uh, likely agree with my assessment that with very few and very minor exceptions, every man she has ever met or had any kind of a relationship with appears to have been complete garbage. Oh, really? You look at at everything she had experienced of human relationships to the time she met OJ and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, like this is this is like pretty oh, really? not that bad by what <laughs> compared to what you've been through. So hmm. Paula is born on New Year's Eve, 1966. Mm-hmm. Her parents are Marianne Cartanudo, who is a daughter of Italian immigrants who settled in Connecticut. Okay. Marianne marries a salesman named Vincent Barbieri, who is apparently very charming, very much a ladies' man, Mm -hmm. a big drinker, and given to rage and to violent outbursts. 
Hmm. And so in 1964, Marianne has two little kids, Vinny and Michael. She flees her husband, Vincent, and Mm -hmm. moves down to Florida. Mm -hmm. And Vincent follows her. Mm. And that's how Paula is conceived. She writes that she's the result of her parents' reconciliation. Oh, wow. It feels like... Like, this is the star she's born under. Like, she's born to two people who are like, we really shouldn't be married. Hmm. I've already fled you once, but like, let's give it another try, I guess. Wow. And then they're together until Paula's is three. She talks about spending her childhood like her dad is a truck driver. And so every time she saw a white truck in Panama City, Florida, which is where she grows up, she looks into the cab to see if her dad is inside of it. Oh, Oh, wow. So he's like this phantom limb presence in her life where she probably doesn't remember him super well if she was only three. So she's sort of constructed him. Yeah. And, and she sees him occasionally. But like she says that when, as she's growing up, she'll sometimes visit him for, you know, a week in the summer in West Palm Beach where he lives okay. when she's older. But, you know, even like the fondest memories, you know, she writes, I remember tickling his back while he read the newspaper over his morning shots of vodka. Oh, and my how God. He liked to call me button, you know, so like the best memories are like. He's like <laughs> quietly drinking yeah. and just like letting her be near him. And hmm. she talks about, you know, she as a kid will lie in bed crying about how much she misses her dad and her mom's trying to comfort her. And she says, is daddy dead? Why doesn't he call me? Why doesn't oh he love God. me? You'll see him soon, mom would say. She was almost always wrong. Mm. Paula's big struggle as she's growing up is that she... In middle school and high school, she goes out for cheerleader five times and she never gets put on cheerleading. Hmm. But she was in, she is in sixth grade cheerleading for the little sixth grade football players. But they have cheerleaders in sixth grade? It's a, it's a big country. <laughs> <laughs> There's many different kinds of cheerleaders. <laughs> and so they're, they're having a homecoming game and her dad promises that he's going to be there to escort her because that's what all the other dads are doing. And she's like watching all the other dads show up. And of course, her dad doesn't come. And there's um, Uh. let me show you a picture, actually. Okay. Oh, well, here's little Paula. This is when she's like seven. Oh, my God. Look at her little bowl cut. Yeah. Everyone had that haircut. She has a little button nose. Oh, and then and here's her dad. Here's Vincent Barbieri. Okay. He's smiling. He's got his arm around two ladies. Two unnamed women. On Two unnamed ladies. <laughs> he's got curly hair. He's wearing like a polo shirt. One of those polo shirts that are now associated with white supremacy. <laughs> but <laughs> Wait, I, don't, really? I think they had different connotations in the 1960s. And uh, okay. And here's Paula, sixth grade cheerleader, being escorted to homecoming by one of the other football players because her dad oh, wow. didn't show up. Wow. Look at that face. She has kind of like a strained smile. To me, she like she's got a big smile on her face and her eyes are completely vacant. You know, to yeah. me, this is the look of like smile though your heart is breaking. Yeah. And then the next picture of Paula that we have is when she's crowned the Azalea Trail Queen. Is that like a Girl Scouts thing? No, it is a uh, Florida beauty pageant that she was in. Oh, fuck. Wow. Yeah. She looks amazing. Wow. She has like long flowing brown hair. She's wearing a sort of billowy white dress. She's holding flowers. In the earlier photo, she looks like a cute kid. And now she's like, yes, she's a professional, good looking person. Like she looks incredible. Yeah. And then this is her when she's 17. Like she suddenly became someone who people wanted. Hmm. I mean, that to me is kind of part of the story here. Hmm. 
She writes, I grew up with the image of my dad as a Clint Eastwood character, a guy who drank two fingers of vodka for breakfast and could beat up any man anywhere. The difference was that Clint Eastwood never hit a woman. I was still an infant when dad lost it one day and pushed mom against a piece of furniture, cracking two of her ribs. Oh my then God. he just left us leaving his sanitation truck company, the family's main source of income. Oh, wow. And so her mom, who's working in a law office at the time, takes a leave and takes over the sanitation truck company because really? that's the main breadwinner. And so Paula, as a little baby, spends her days in her baby basket in the garbage truck next to her mom, who's like hmm. driving this garbage truck around. Picking up trash because Man. her husband has just beaten her up and then left. How is this not a movie in the 1980s starring Dolly Parton? Yeah, good question. She's like a tough-talking garbage lady? That'd be yeah. dope. There's still time. <laughs> Two years after that, Paula's mom marries a guy named Bill. Mm -hmm. Do we think that he's going to be a good father figure? I mean, we already know it's going to be so bad. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think is going to happen? Poor Paula. I mean, I think it's because I've been reading so much about trafficking recently that mm. so much abuse that kids suffer is at the hands of step-parents, not necessarily yeah. parents. Yeah. Bill apparently is sweet-tempered when he's not drinking, mm. but those periods of time become less and less frequent. Uh. You know, the, the fresh start that Paula's mom is getting is that Vincent Barbieri drank vodka at breakfast, but Bill drinks bourbon at breakfast. So... Uh. It's more of a lateral move than anything. Oh, my God. And so Bill is kind of sporadically employed. Mm -hmm. Paula's mom, Marianne, is the one who is keeping the family together Jesus. and making the money and supporting everybody. And so they, they moved to Panama City when Paula's seven, which at the time is a pretty small town. Mm -hmm. I'll just read it to you. As my father never paid child support, mom was carrying the whole family on her salary as a supervisor with a land title company. There wasn't much money, but we made do. We lived off the garden and out of the gulf where Bill would take us fishing. We feasted on oysters, shrimp, and blue crabs. I could eat spaghetti and crabs every week when they were topped with mom's marsala sauce. One summer we caught loads of king mackerel, which we ate every way imaginable. To this day, I can't look at one. We lived in a town that felt safe and small. I could fish with my friends among the cranes and herons or build forts in the woods across the street. When the weather got hot, we'd invade the motels and go swimming. We called it pool hopping. <laughs> when we got thrown out of one place, we just moved on to the next. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's good stuff. No one's yeah. childhood is, is pure misery. Like Bill gets her a bike and paints it silver so she can kind of get around town that way. Her mom makes her all her dresses until she's 10 and then she starts becoming interested in fashion she tells a story that is kind of supposed to be cute but which really gives one pause huh. um which is that the first jeans that she ever wore she borrowed from her friend sandra and then <clears throat> she writes at reading circle that day james yon the cutest boy in the class kept edging over till he was sitting right next to me i was startled when i felt him playing with my backside what are you doing? I said. I was genuinely baffled. No boy had ever paid me a second look. And mm. he said, oh, I was just trying to get your Levi tag with my pen. On our way home after school that day, James stopped and gave me a kiss. My first kiss. <laughs> it was my initial glimpse at the power of fashion. <laughs> Which is like, that's great that you think that. <laughs> but like, yeah. that's, so it's like your first romantic experiences with a guy touching you. Yeah. 
without your consent. It's so interesting thinking about sort of women gaining power by being conventionally attractive because it's a form of power, but it's also a target on your back for this kind of behavior to some extent. I mean, not to say that women who aren't conventionally attractive don't have these kinds of experiences because, of course, Mm -hmm. they do, and they're less likely to report them and be believed. But it's also Mm. like so... So much of the experience of being a good-looking, conventionally attractive woman is shit like this, like being targeted for this kind of thing and and laughing it off or telling yourself this different narrative about it. Or I guess like good looks generally thinking that it just happens to everybody. Or that it's about, you know, your appearance and like you have this power over this person because you look this way. So really you're the one who has the power in the situation. Like that's a story that, that girls are really encouraged to believe. Yeah. So... Essentially, you know, Bill's drinking gets worse. His behavior gets worse. Paula says, one night I came in for dinner and found my mother sitting quietly at the kitchen table with a cocktail in her hand. Mm. She was the picture of dignity, except for the tomato sauce dripping off her nose and the blue crab legs embedded in her hair. Mother, what happened? I cried. Bill just admitted, she calmly replied, that he hates spaghetti and crabs. (gasps) <gasps> she never raised her voice to him that night, never said a word. Bill was a big man, 6'2", 240 pounds, and she feared to fuel his fire. And she writes about, she lies in bed at night, just listening to these fights mm. between Bill and her mother, listening to the sound of dishes breaking, listening mm. to, like, this horrible fight happening, and then silence, you know, and not knowing what happened. And, like, did, does that mean that, like, her mom has been hurt again? Oh, my God. You know? And, like, if you spend your childhood lying in bed listening to adults fighting in a way that mm-hmm. you can't control, then it's to me it's a very straight line between that and, and imagining yourself into the backseat of the white Bronco. Yeah. Yeah. Like, her whole existence is being a helpless witness to the violence of other people that can sometimes right. spiral out and affect her if she gets in the way. Right. I just think that after we tear down all the Confederate statues, we should put up statues to people like her mom. <laughs> just like people who have never been noticed by history in any way, but have just like suffered silently in some kind of terrible relationship. And fucking managed to be good parents and managed to earn money anyway. I mean, this is... It's like to be doing all of this, to be experiencing this level of abuse and just subjugation and somebody saying he hates your sort of signature cooking meal, which is like so belittling. The thing that you make because you have no money and because he won't work and because you need to be eating spaghetti and crabs every night. And then also like to be getting your kids through school and getting your kids into beauty pageants and like working at a garbage truck. (laughs) Yeah. And driving a garbage truck all day. Yeah. The amount of strength that we don't know about because the strength is like keeping a situation from becoming so volatile that anyone else ever hears about it is, you know, like this is like the secret power holding, holding the world together. Yeah. And she talks about, you know, her two brothers. Michael was the rebel, the one who defiantly fought back. Vinny was the one Mm. who ran away. Mm. And I was the joker laboring for a laugh. Wow. She's the one who's the people pleaser. She's the one who's trying to keep everyone cheerful and to be happy. (laughs) She comes home from her best friend Marsha's one morning and finds her mom lying on the living room couch facing the wall and like can't see her face. And Paul is like, please look at me. And then she realized her mom has been hiding the fact that one side of her face is black and blue. Um, Sarah, I'm going to cry. I know. I know. This is so... 
Oh my God, this sucks. And she writes, the night before, Bill had lost it again. The police finally had to knock down the front door to get in. They <gasps> took Bill away, but not before mom suffered a concussion. Oh my God. Why do you stay? I pleaded with her. We can <sighs> leave. Let's just go. We don't have to come back here ever. But for all those years, mom put off moving on. I think she was afraid to lose her third marriage. She kept hmm. hoping things would get better. Hmm. She kept hoping the brilliant, charming man she had fallen in love with would resurface. She was afraid, finally, to be alone. It wasn't until I was much older that I began to understand why it took so long for mom to leave. When you place a man at the center of your life hmm. and define your happiness through him, it's a very tough thing to let that man go. Even when he makes you feel as if you're on a roller coaster <laughs> nine days out of ten, it gets hard to trust that you could ever be happy without him. It's the patriarchy. <laughs> it was the patriarchy all along. <laughs> uh. Yeah. And just that, you know, and that you like, you look at her relationship with OJ and I feel like anyone <sighs> who, you know, looks at that and is like, well, why didn't she leave him? Why would, why would she go back? Yeah. You know, she wants fame. She wants whatever. She wants money. Like seeing all these ulterior motives in her just being like, well, I would never do that. I would never. Right. be in a relationship with oj simpson and it's like okay well like let's have you be born <laughs> out of a reconciliation yeah. and abusive marriage and then spend your infancy like with your dad assaulting your mom and then leaving and then like riding around in a garbage truck that she's driving to support the family and then like and then see if you stay in a relationship with oj simpson yeah. 25 years later because it might be different for you if, like, the preceding 25 years had been like that. I love recording this show on Saturday mornings because then I hang out with my friends afterwards and they're like, how's your day going? And I'm like, I'm really angry about an entertainment weekly review of a book that came out in 1997. Like, I'm even more angry at that review now. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's return to that review, right? Because that really is, like, the crown jewel in this kind of rhetoric. And just, yeah, her Nicole-like inability... To leave OJ is what it says, right? Yeah. And, it, the, and that, like, we need to forgive her for that. It's like, what kind of a moral universe do you believe in where Paula needs to be forgiven for anything? Right, right. It's also weird because the way that we construct domestic abuse, you know, to the extent that we hate it, it's always like this evil man and this victim woman, this kind of quivering in the corner type of woman, perfect victim mm. archetype. And it's so much harder to deal with the way that this is generational and the way that people end up in patterns of being in abusive relationships. Yeah. Like we tend to cast that as their fault somehow. Like, well, yeah. how did she end up in three abusive relationships? She must really like it or blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't like, I don't think it was like a good choice for Paula to stay with OJ, but it's also just on a purely factual basis. Like, yeah, of course she did. Like, that makes yeah. sense. I, we really can't look at things as isolated events. You know, everything is part of the biography of multiple people, which is why yeah. this series is taking so long. <laughs> and so Paula writes, what amazes me about mom is how she sustained relationships with her children. Every now and then, whenever the weather turned especially cold and stormy, my mother would skip work and let us skip school. She would cook up a big pot of spaghetti or stew, and we'd all cuddle in bed together and watch movies. That was huggy day. Our lives finally changed in 1981 when I was set to enter high school. One day, my mother came home with a big smile and said grandly, Well, I've got us a swimming pool you always wanted. By then, a licensed realtor. She had bought oh 12 God. raw acres in the countryside, subdivided them into one-acre parcels, <laughs> and sold them on installment plans. Then, she traded the mortgages for a small motel called the Thomas Drive. We had not only a fabulous pool, 
but a new home and a separation from Bill. Sarah, this is like the end of Coco. I'm like, I'm like moist. <laughs> Just emotionally obliterated, and this My is only God. on page 135. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you're like, and I, I love how, you know, because another thing is like, Paula, you know, the public meets her in 1994 when she's like right. the girl in the Michael Bolton video, right? right? She's the professionally beautiful model who's like been on magazine covers. She's done all these european campaigns she speaks italian she's very cultured hmm. the world meets her in as a as an adult like what no one sees when paula emerges into the public eye is that she was once a 14 year old girl for whom the chance to move into a motel that her mom had bought and escape her abusive stepfather was like a greater miracle than could possibly be imagined oh my god now you're trying to make me cry i'm not <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make other people cry, and if you cry, then that's collateral damage that I feel okay about. <laughs> it's never in the sad parts of the movie. It's always in the happy parts of the movie where I start yeah. crying and you're... Yes. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the part in Aaron Brockovich where Ed Masry gives her a new car. <laughs> oh, my God. This is the ending of the Dolly Parton movie. Fucking yeah. hell. Yes, and Dolly Parton gets her kids out and they get a motel. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and, uh... And to skip ahead a little bit, she writes that in high school, she suddenly has classmates who are from Bay Point, which is a gated, wealthy neighborhood mm. in Panama City. And this is where, like, the the fancy kids from the normal families live. And she's like, wow, like, Bay Point. Like, I have no idea what Bay Point is like. She says it's a place for normal families where people didn't drink and fight and call the police every other night. And... When she starts making serious modeling money, she buys her mom a house in Bay Point. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's the second ending to the Dolly Parton movie. God damn it. <laughs> um, but, you know, but things get better, right? They move into this motel and Paula and her mom clean the rooms and work the desk and wow. run the place. It's a very small operation. And Is Bill out of the picture at this point? As far as I know, Bill is out of the okay. picture. They've okay. They've gotten separated. And... You know, who knows how, how clean that separation is, but he at least right. seems to no longer be a clear and present danger. Mm. She starts high school. She gets really into the French Impressionists. Okay. And we'll look at these pictures in her art books and think about what would it be like to be walking around in, in one of those paintings in Paris, France. You know, the only places she's ever been in her life outside of Panama City, basically, are to visit her cousins in Connecticut and to go to mm -hmm. Disney World with her mom and Bill right at the start of the relationship. Mm -hmm. So like th things are getting better. And then in, in an event that will recur on a larger scale, mm -hmm. she gets her, her first real boyfriend, her junior year, she gets off to kind of a rough start because the first guy she goes out with her brothers are like, if you touch my sister, I'll break your arms. Oh <laughs> so. my God. Great toxic stuff. Yeah. Playing the hits. But she gets her first real boyfriend junior year mm -hmm. and she writes, he was very dramatic. Whenever I was late for my first class, which was just about every day, he'd call me on the phone and say, if you're late tomorrow, I swear I'm just going to shoot myself. Uh-oh. After we dated for a few weeks, I was ready to break up with him, but I kept putting it off. And then I got a phone call. My study had smashed his motorcycle into a parked truck and fractured both his legs. Mm. And so she feels like she's kind of done with the relationship, but oh, now he's no. in the hospital. It's the same thing. Yeah. And what happens is that she stays in the relationship until he's well, 
And then when he's all better and back in school, she breaks up with him Mm. and her friends are like, how could you do that? Like, what a terrible thing to do. Like, why would you break up with this nice guy who just got over this accident? Oh, so she's the villain, of course. Yeah. And this is and this is her first flirtation with like trying out being like, this is not working for me. I don't like this. I need to stop. I've like put in my time and I'm ready to break up with you now. And everyone's like, how dare she? Yeah. Right. That's interesting. So when she's growing up, she she really wants to get out of Florida. And I think an interesting parallel between her and OJ is that they are both people who really came from nothing and <laughs> who did escape. Right. OJ <laughs> got out through football and she got out through modeling. Although I would really like to appropriate the Jenna Maroney from 30 Rock term, which is face worker, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> she gets out through face work. And so, you know, she keeps going out for cheerleader. That doesn't work out. She enters dance talent shows. She's like not really making a dent there. She wants to be an actress. There's a period when she wants to be a lawyer, which is profoundly ironic. Yeah. She says, my mother had worked in law offices for years. I think she would have become a lawyer herself, except that my grandfather believed that girls had no place in higher education. Uh... There's also this very offhanded reference after her mother ran off to Florida, partly to get away from from Vincent Barbieri, she writes, Grandfather Cartanudo was enraged by mom's departure. When it was clear that she wasn't coming back, he took a bulldozer and rolled over the storage shed with all the possessions she left behind. <gasps> what? So, like, the roots go deep. Because she left her shitty husband? Yeah. <sighs> There's no precedent for women in this family being treated like they matter. Yeah. The moment... When things really start to change for Paula is when she enters the Sweetheart of the Beach pageant, which happens in February of her junior year of high school. Mm. She enters Sweetheart of the Beach. She says she's never heard of a pedicure before. And all these other girls have Mm. manicures and pedicures. Mm. She's been this like tall, skinny, flat chested tomboy who's kind of Mm -hmm. starting to, to come into her own, basically. And she's announced first runner up. At Sweetheart of the Beach. And the next month, she enters the Azalea Trail, which is the one I showed you a picture from, which is a bigger contest. Okay. And she wins. Mm. And she writes, I remember that moment. It was the first time in my life that I'd felt pretty. Oh, Paula. (laughs) And then fascinatingly... She writes, years later, I learned that a number of judges were concerned that I was too, quote, sexy to be a proper queen. Oh, wow. That would have seemed ridiculous to me at the time. I was still your basic brick wall. Her brothers used to sing brick house, but with the words brick wall about her and make fun of her for being flat. I know they do not come off well in the story either. I have some grievances with Michael and Vinnie Barbieri. Yeah. I was still your basic brick wall. A 32B cup would have meant progress. But those grown-ups must have spotted something I couldn't yet see in the mirror. (laughs) There's something so deranged about the judges for a contest in which women are placed according to their looks. Yeah. Like, she's too sexy. Yes. What do you think is the purpose of this event, Steve? Like, you are literally (laughs) ranking 17-year-old girls on their physical attractiveness, but... She should also be docked points because she's too attractive. Yeah. Like, what? Yes. It's this It's this whole weird, dumb myth that we have that women should be sexy, but they shouldn't sort of want to be sexy or they shouldn't be trying. <laughs> Michael Hobbs describes heteronormativity. I mean... <laughs> I love it. 
I love it. I don't it. get this at all. I think that what happens in these situations is that male judges, you know, see this parade of teenage girls and presumably little baby Paula, who like doesn't know what a pedicure is, comes out and they're like, that girl made me feel sexual feelings. And that means mm. that she's being sexy and it's her fault. Totally. And she must be penalized. And it's like, you're attracted to her. Like, that's you, man. Like, this yeah. is your issue. Yeah. There's a difference between catalyzation and intent. I mean, I'm glad she's I'm I'm glad this is happening for her because like she deserves all of the good things. I mean, uh, yeah, it just it's like she ran out of, you know, this burning building that was her family as she was growing up and then into this world that was supposed to be an escape for her, which is the world of pageantry and then of modeling. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out to be a bigger burning building. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, things are from then on, from this point forward, like things, she's suddenly kind of like tied down to the fast track Hmm. because then uh, her senior year, she wins Sweetheart of the Beach. Mm -hmm. And then she goes with her friends, Terry and Debbie to a fashion show at the Panama City Mall. Okay. Because they're like, maybe you'll get discovered. And she's like, oh, yeah, whatever. And then apparently mm-hmm. someone says, stop that girl. Oh. And it's Mary Lou Tan of Mary Lou's Model School in Pensacola. Mm-hmm. I really love that name. Mary Lou's Model School in Pensacola. <laughs> so she's discovered by Mary Lou of Mary Lou's Model School in Pensacola. <laughs> and Mary Lou takes her to what she describes as something big in Atlanta, which turns out to be the four-day international model talent competition, also known as the Face Finders Olympics. I did not know such a thing existed, but I'm not surprised. She goes to the Face Finders Olympics and kind of sweeps the thing. She There's a simulated photo shoot. There's a runway walk event. And she mm-hmm. wins those categories. She says they talk with the top headhunters from Ford and Prestige and Elite, the cream of the cream. She's mm-hmm. being told she should go to Europe and model there first and then come back and be like the new European girl who everyone's interested in. Yeah, they have a much higher class of perverts in Europe. <laughs> oh, we will get to that. <laughs> and so she is offered free tickets to Paris. <gasps> She's 17 years old. Her dream. Yes. She's like, I get to go to the Louvre. The I get Impressionists, to to- the water lilies. Notre Dame Cathedral. Like, yes. yes, France. And so she goes to Paris. Yeah. So what does she find when she gets to Paris? What happens? So it's June of 1984. She's just finished high school. Who does this remind us of? Oh, Nicole. Yeah. <laughs> Every woman in this story is going to have a lot more in common with the other women than than the public maybe tended to realize at the time, you know, and just, yeah, that she's like just out of high school, walking into the grown up world on wobbly little baby deer legs. Mm-hmm. And her mom has scraped together $300 worth of spending money. Oh, wow. And sent her off to Paris. And she says that she and Mary Lou from Mary Lou's modeling school in Pensacola, thank you, have been won over by Claude Haddad, one of the more prominent agents we've met at the IMTC, the Face Finder Olympics. So she and Mary Lou fly to Paris. Mary Lou is going to help her get settled in and then fly back to Pensacola. Mm-hmm. And the first whisper that things are maybe going to not go as planned comes when Claude says, baby, your apartment is not ready yet. You must stay with me. It's okay. I take care of you. Oh, no. Trafficking. Yes. Trafficking warning signs. Yes. Say more <laughs> about that. <laughs> well, again, I mean, as we discussed last week, there's no mystery to where trafficking is happening. It's 
where people do not have power for themselves. And Mm -hmm. so when you have an industry where it's a lot of young women, many of whom have not traveled before, many of whom have not traveled internationally before, Mm -hmm. and they're relying on a group of mostly older men, mostly wealthy older men Mm -hmm. to provide their food, their lodging, their schedule, their income. They're in a country where they don't speak the language. They don't know how to get around freely. I'm not wild about the term trafficking, but it's like when you think about an exploitative situation, it is an industry that does not provide mechanisms for people to point out wrongdoing. And that's exactly the world that she's entering. Right. And so Paula writes that, you know, things feel a little weird, but she writes, all was fine until Mary Lou returned to Florida a few days later. Within hours, the locks had disappeared from all the doors. A big problem, I realized, when Claude walked in on me in the bath and refused to leave until I started crying. Oh, my God. Claude's phones blocked calls to the States. I felt trapped. Oh, my God. It's no big deal, said Felicia, who's another model, as though she were some jaded woman of the world. That's just him. Still Uh. fighting jet lag, I slept soundly that night. It was dark when I snapped awake to see Claude at the foot of my bed, holding up the blankets to gaze at me in my t-shirt and panties, Uh, ready to climb aboard. Claude! When I cried out, Claude dropped to his knees and served up a practiced line. I love you. You have made me crazy in love with you, he swore. Do you have a boyfriend? Have you ever been touched by a man before? The guy was completely nutso, I thought. I burst into tears and somehow prevailed upon Claude to leave. And then the next day, he... (laughs) again just is giving her this spiel and when he goes into the kitchen for coffee she says she basically grabs all her stuff and runs out into the street good yes yeah which what else would she have done right like that's kind of the only solution like it's not like she's going to be able to stay and make the situation better by appeasing him we know that doesn't work that's very brave, too. Yes. I mean, she's going out into a foreign country where not a lot of people speak English. She doesn't understand any of the government systems that could help her. Like, yes. That's a dope thing to do. She's 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is like action Paula. <laughs> and then she writes, not knowing how to use the payphone outside, I asked the first man I encountered for help. My high school French must have failed me as the man grabbed his crotch and started chasing me. Oh, my God. Panicked, I ran into a pharmacy and jabbered at the people in hysterical English. They promptly threw me out. Finally, I found a good Samaritan who helped to connect me with Eileen Ford of the Ford Agency in New York. I didn't know who else to call. She directed me to her colleague, Jean-Luc, Claude's competition in Paris. And luckily, Jean-Luc doesn't try anything with Paula and gives her an apartment to live in with another model where he's not going to be like crawling into her bed all the time. That's like an actual miracle, though, that she found like she managed to find someone in Paris. Yeah. Who's not a sex pest, as the British say. (laughs) And then I I looked up Claude Haddad. And if you just like type his name into Google, all these other stories come up of just other models, you know, mostly who are teenagers in Europe in the 80s. We're like, oh, yeah, he climbed into my bed with me. I woke up and he was in bed with me. You know, because there were no locks on the door, I found a guitar and I put that against the door. So it would fall down every time he like came into my room at night. And then I would just like hide in the bathroom. You know, like this is this. He was doing this apparently with a lot of girls. Which means Harvey style that probably (sighs) other people in the industry knew about it. So this is from a book called Bad and Beautiful Inside the Dazzling and Deadly World of Supermodels. Which to me makes it sound like the supermodels are dangerous by <laughs> author named Ian Halperin, who writes during a one on one interview, CBS 60 Minutes journalist Diane Sawyer raked Haddad over the coals. Sawyer asked Haddad about the accusations against him. Amazingly, Haddad acted as if he had done nothing wrong. 
At times, he even seemed proud of his sexual conquests. He bragged to Sawyer about how he was able to attract young, beautiful girls. When Sawyer asked him how he felt waking up each morning in an apartment full of models, Haddad gave a cocky grin. He called his models flowers. Oh, my God. Just smell them, he said. That's it. Just smell the perfume. Diane Sawyer asked Haddad if he had ever resorted to rape or sexual blackmail. Haddad's response was evasive. He said he couldn't recall, but added, it's possible. (gasps) Everyone could read between the lines. Sawyer had finally nailed one of fashion's all-time sleazeballs. Oh, my God. Which is, like, kind of, but it's, like, this interview, this is in the late 80s, and I guess one of the things I think about a lot about the Me Too movement is this, you know, this attitude that you see sometimes in media about it of, like, who could have imagined that this rampant of abuse was taking place in so many industries? And it's, like, we knew. Like, this was on television. Like, people saw this, and it's just, it's... There are many cases where, you know, the public didn't have full information or where they lacked crucial pieces of information. But there are also a lot of cases where the information was right there in front of us and we just weren't absorbing it. Yes. So, Claude, uh, despite the fact that she's escaped him, (laughs) he has kept most of her spending money, the $300 her mom (gasps) scraped together for, quote, safekeeping, which classic Claude, right? (sighs) So Paula decides that the cheapest meal she can get in Paris is baguette and brie. Mm-hmm. She's lying in bed, like lonely and traumatized, eating brie and baguette every day. And of course, immediately starts <laughs> getting criticized for putting on weight because she's <laughs> five nine and up to 130 pounds, which I believe <laughs> is underweight for that height. But you know. Wow. And... <laughs> This again, this again is like not that funny, but in context, it, it's funny somehow that she's getting jobs, but she's like pretty unhappy putting on more weight than the clients necessarily want her to have. And so finally she gets, you know, ends up at a dinner party in a fashionable neighborhood where she's going to, you know, kind of move and shake and and meet some people. And she meets the host of the dinner party. She describes him as a genteel man with a strong accent who offers her a glass of champagne. And she's like, no, I don't drink. I don't smoke. But he doesn't think that that makes her a hayseed, which is what she's afraid of, and is being very charming and uh, sweet to her. And that's Roman Polanski. Ah, I knew that was going to be him because you mentioned him earlier. You. The most amazing part of this <laughs> is that according to Paula, like if if we take Paula's account at face value, he was like the first safe guy that she met. Like, really? I mean, you know, who knows? Like, I think you have to leave the door open to like maybe there's stuff going on that they just was, you know, he's his career matters more than Claude Haddad's. You can see. <laughs> There Hmm. being maybe stuff that wasn't talked about. But, you know, if we're going to believe Paula, which is is what I'm doing, then she is in this world where, like, the safest man (laughs) she can find is Roman Polanski. And he doesn't seem to have tried anything with her. (laughs) Roman Polanski takes her to Italy to hang out while he works on the movie Pirates and... He takes Paula to the Sistine Chapel. He doesn't try to assault her. It's like, it doesn't mean that he's like a fantastic guy, but it means like in the world that Paula's in, it's like, yes, finally, Roman Polanski, come save me. Not the role I was expecting him to play in this story. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, that that's how life is when there's just that little safety. You're like, I am clinging to 
the person who's been nice to me so far. Yeah. There's still, I think, general creepiness here, but on the yeah. scale of the things that Roman Polanski's accused of. Like and of and on the scale of what Paula has experienced so far. I mean, yeah. also not just in modeling, but with like men from her family. Like when was the last time a guy her dad's age did a dad thing with her yeah. like her dad's not gonna take her to a museum that's never happened that's never right. going to happen so you gotta right. just take what you can get and go with roman polanski it's also interesting because it's so wrapped up in her looks yeah like the evidence is not that this is a guy who's sort of looking for wayward vulnerable youths and like <laughs> in a genuine way mentoring them and big brother big sister and i'm just a nice guy like it's clear that like her looks are somewhere in here as far as his motivations yes. are concerned yeah but he doesn't appear in her telling to have done anything with that particularly right and then it's like i imagine that he has this attitude of you know i'm dating an adult woman at this time or yeah i'm i'm in another relationship but i just i mean kind of what claude haddad said right they're flowers i like to have beautiful young girls around and yeah and they're like flowers for me i can imagine him feeling that way which is like yeah weird and gross but like worked out fine for paula given the context of the situation you know it's just right yeah. it's like there is no shard of ideal world hidden in here it's just degrees yeah. of like the weirdness yeah. of this system you find yourself yeah. in and how do you make it work for you Man, if i found out my boyfriend was like showing around like oh like the danish national gymnastics team is in town and one of the teammates is a 16 year old boy and like i'm just showing him what seattle is like and we're going on bike rides i'd be like the fuck you are <laughs> this is fucking weird there's no reason you need to be hanging out with that person at all no i think that's good i think that's a good bright line to have in a relationship yes so she's hanging out with roman polanski and she's like well this is the best that europe appears to be capable of offering me jesus christ i think when she was at the face finders olympics people were like oh you should go to japan and now she's okay. like yeah japan mm -hmm. and so she goes to tokyo and she says i knew i'd made the right choice as soon as the higher card dropped me at my tokyo apartment i had cable television got the lowest bar yeah and this is where things kind of start to work out for her she's working every day for months she's making commercials where she's getting paid potentially like forty thousand dollars per commercial if you count residuals like she's oh yeah paula yes yes get it paula get it paula <laughs> Like, if you're at this point in the story and you're begrudging Paula Barbieri making money, that kind of money off of modeling, then I just have nothing left for you. I have no more arguments. It's I've done my part. <laughs> and so she decides that she's, you know, originally she was going to spend the summer modeling and then go to college. And then she mm -hmm. decides, you know, I'm going to I'm going to stick with this modeling thing. Like, this is yeah. working out for me. And then she goes to New York and... Um, November of 1984, and I have a little story for you that is mm -hmm. going to tie in with our recent gangs episode. Oh, the cab driver was losing patience. Fresh from the airport, I'd asked him to take me to Zoli, my new agency in New York, at Lexington mm -hmm. Avenue and East 56th Street. But as the cabbie slowed to drop me off, I saw a bunch of young guys in white loitering by the corner with their bicycles. I'd read about New York City street gangs, and my long <sighs> plane ride had me just about hallucinating anyway. Please go around the block again, I begged the driver for the eighth time. Lady, you're here. You need to get out, he said. But you don't understand, I said, my voice quavering. There's a gang on the corner there, and I'm just a girl by myself. Lady, the cabbie said wearily, those are pizza delivery guys. Now please get out of my car. 
<laughs> Maybe they were all pizza delivery guys the whole time. <laughs> What if all of the gangs and the warriors were all from competing pizza places? That would explain why their outfits were like so on point. <laughs> uh, and so he's up to 140 pounds. Everyone's like, let's put you on a diet. She's like, no, I feel really good. Like, I feel like this is a good weight for me. Yeah. Let Paula be what she wants to weigh. Let Paula be Paula. Yeah. But like things are going well for her. She's getting work. She's like, I'm... I'm going to stay in this industry where I can have my own place to live. I'm making my own money. I'm mm -hmm. sending money home to my family. I don't have to live with my mom in whatever relationship she might end up in. I don't have to mm -hmm. have my brothers threatening to break the arms of guys who go out with me. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just love that she got to have like this degree of independence. Right. For a couple of years anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And just as abusive as the industry was, like she was able to make like real money and the kind of money that she could change her family's life with. And like all mm -hmm. of the family stuff persisted. But just I don't know. I just feel like so many more girls deserve this kind of a chance and don't get it. So many of the other people that we've talked about. Yeah. And, and so begins the next big phase of her life um, and her first love, who is Dolph Lundgren. What the fuck? <laughs> How many, like, 90s-ish cameos is the story going to have? You have no idea. <laughs> but I will jump ahead a little bit and say that the relationship becomes fatally fractured because he cheats on her with his ex-girlfriend, mm. Grace Jones. Wait, Gra the Grace Jones? The Grace Jones. Paula got cheated on with Grace Jones. Wow. I mean... You know, I mean, I guess if you're in a relationship with someone and they and they have to cheat on you with someone like, I guess I would understand more if it was Grace Jones. Yeah, that's <laughs> <what> it, <laughs> I don't know if that makes it better or worse. But then also you're like, what the fuck am I going to do if my boyfriend is still hung up on Grace Jones? Like, what yeah. chance do I have? Is that relationship positive in her life? I mean, it's, it's not physically uh, abusive, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is. Right. We're like at the point where the bar for positive is like not physically abusive, which is like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she meets him during a photo shoot with him and, and two other models. And mm -hmm. they're all in bed together, strategically covered by a sheet. Of course. He's like six, five. He's hot as breakfast. He's, He's hot as breakfast. out of marble. Yeah. She says that there's this immediate attraction. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> he's Dolph Lundgren. Because they're both super attractive. Yeah, they're both. Un oh, here, I have a picture, actually. I'm hoping he's shirtless. Uh, if I looked like that, I would be shirtless at all times. Uh, he is sleeveless. Oh, yeah. He's shirtless in one of them. Okay. Thank God. So here they are together. Oh, wow. There's Dolph and Paula. He's huge. Oh He's huge. His face is like an order of scale bigger than her face. I Paula know. doesn't often have serious boyfriends, but when she does, they have enormous heads. Wow. It's like a Photoshop disaster. <laughs> but she looks gorgeous. Yeah, she looks great. And then here they are on the beach in Panama City, Florida. Oh. Shirtless Dolph. God, she looks, just looks like a smurf next to this redwood of a human being. <laughs> yeah, she does. And she's got like her whole body draped around just his upper arm. I can see why she likes him. I mean, there's something really appealing about that. He's big. He's buff. Yeah. He's Swedish. So he's oh, yeah. probably like super socialist. <laughs> Interestingly, eventually he's like, you know, in Sweden... All men have mistresses and it's normal, which oh, is like an no. interesting version of the, you know, <laughs> oh, OJ no. just does all men cheat, but Dolph does. Well, in Sweden, 
Don't use Scandinavia for evil. We know we know what goes on in Scandinavia, Dolph. That's easily look upable. Nice try. So they do this photo shoot together. There's this there's this instant attraction. She writes, I didn't try to kid myself. I knew I'd gone head over heels, but I put Dolph off. That's hard to say. I put Dolph off once he got my phone number and started asking me out. Mm-hmm. Besides, I had all the work I could handle. I needed to focus on my career. Dolph kept calling over the next month, and I kept turning him down. I was working in Miami one afternoon, miserable with the flu, when I got a call from Tom Hahn, at the time a booker for my Los Angeles modeling agency. He confirmed me on a job in Malibu the next morning. And she's like, I'm too sick. I have the flu. Like, I don't want to work. And he's like, listen, they're paying you $10,000 for the day to do a simple kissing shot with this guy. Just get on the plane and rest up on the way, and they'll have a car there to take you to the job. She writes, that flight was one of the worst travel ordeals of my life. I had a fever and the sweats, and I barely found the strength to collapse into the car at LAX. In Malibu, I met the photographer and told him I couldn't do a kissing picture. I'm going to get the guy so sick, it's not fair. The photographer smiled and said, that's okay. Just go and tell the client. He's out there by the beach. I'm sure we can work something out. I straggled out to the beach, and there at Water's Edge stood Dolph. Life is life. I couldn't get a date. Sorry. I couldn't get a date with you, he explained. So I figured I'd have to pay you to come to see me. Whoa. She says, from that day on, as long as it lasted, Dolph Lundgren would be my world, my life. And it's like, but (laughs) you were sick and he tricked you. Yeah, that's. You can see how their relationship had its salad days and was like working, you know, that there was like this infatuation and like good stuff happening and that it was exciting for her and he's gorgeous and like all that is true. But like. From the beginning, like, he's not taking seriously your needs as a human being. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those stories that shows up in romantic comedies a lot where if she wasn't infatuated with him, this would be, like, a really, like, huge warning sign story Mm -hmm. of, like, (laughs) I have to pay you to kiss me? And it's now, like, a weird professional obligation, like, with contracts and stuff to kiss me? And you're, like, going through my agent and, like, tricking me into flying here when I'm sick to see. (laughs) Like, I just, you know, she has the fucking flu. Like, you shouldn't be doing anything but drinking ginger ale and watching Law and Order when you have the flu. It is interesting how so many of the cute stories in her book are, like, deeply troubling. Troubling. (laughs) Right. And it's just, and if your context is, like... If that's as good as it gets, then like, yeah, yeah, I guess that that's, you know, it's just all about what you believe you deserve to ask for, to expect from yeah. the world. And so, you know, wow. and, then, and then after that, you know, things are good for a while. And then it, essentially, like, he starts to find things to be critical about. He's like, my friends like you, my family loves you, everything is wonderful, but do you realize that we go out for every meal and that you don't cook at all? <laughs> that's that's what he seizes on? <sighs> Yeah. And so she sits down and reads Betty Crocker's cookbook and learns how to cook through trial and error. She's like, you're right. I need to learn how to cook. I'm sorry. She also can't keep up with the amount of drugs that he apparently is using at the time. Oh, like steroids and stuff or like fun drugs like cocaine? Fun drugs. Oh, okay. She's not really into that. She doesn't like being around people or who are high. And she says, Mm -hmm. when you grow up with an alcoholic father and an alcoholic stepfather, it takes the glamour out of drug use. No fucking kidding. Yeah. On the other hand, I knew that Grace had done a lot of drugs with Dolph. For him, it was, if you love me, you'll do them too. 
So I tried for a while to keep up, but there was no way. Dolph was so much bigger than I was. Yeah, it's like dosing a horse. Yeah, they're clearly entering this phase of the relationship where it's like, we've seen this before. We've seen this recently. It's not that she's doing anything wrong. It's that he has to continually find fault with her. And so he cheats on her with Grace Jones. And then he tries to make it up by sending her three dozen red roses every day for weeks. And... Finally, you know, he confesses and comes clean. He says, yes, I I cheated on you with my ex-girlfriend. And then he writes that it happened because I was getting Mm -hmm. too possessive. I was losing my individuality. I must learn, Dolph wrote, not to fully give yourself to anyone unless you're perfectly sure. Always keep a part of you to yourself, which makes you more mysterious and attractive anyway. What? And unfortunately, never trust a man. He closed with Paula, try a smile and drew a little happy face by his signature. <laughs> Literally, you should smile more. <laughs> Classic. <sighs> yeah. And at that point, she's like, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm done with this relationship. Like, I can't keep being cheated on and blamed for it. And luckily, Dolph Lundgren doesn't get arrested for anything immediately afterwards. Right. So she's able to, to move on. Mm-hmm. So... Thanksgiving of 1991 rolls around. She's at the gym and she meets this guy Mm -hmm. named Dean Hamilton, who just seems like a nice, normal guy. And he wants a family, which is very important to her. Did she finally meet a nice guy? Well. (laughs) Oh, no. Here's what happens. Oh, no. Two weeks after they first meet, they fly to Vegas and get married in Uh, a 24-hour wedding chapel. And then... The next day, he calls her mother and asks for a list of her assets. What? And then comes to Paul and says, hey, I need $8,000. What? And she's like, great. (laughs) So you married me so that you could get a loan so that you don't have to lose your house. Oh. Is her read of the situation. And this is to me is the classic Paula feeling more shame than anger. I gave Dean the $8,000 anyway. Oh man. Yeah. Since paid me back. Then we filed for annulment. Okay. So after that, (laughs) she just focuses on work and she writes work became my refuge more than ever. Off. I went to Miami or St. Martin, wherever the booking took me for months. I barely paused to catch my breath. If I slowed down, I knew I'd have to face my loneliness Hmm. or scarier still get involved with another man. Hmm. On one of my rare afternoons off, I was catching up on my errands, tooling around the freeways in my Toyota 4Runner. As I turned off busy Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood and into my valley parking stand, a black Mercedes pulled in behind me. A handsome bullneck man jumped out and greeted me. Marcus Allen the NFL running back, whom I'd met years before. What? Remember Marcus Allen? Yeah, what? He is part of this again? Yeah. Yeah. Remind us who Marcus Allen is. He's a guy, also a football player, who Nicole dated Mm -hmm. after she left OJ. Yeah, which he denies happened, but everyone else said that he and Nicole had a relationship. Mm -hmm. He's younger than OJ. He's kind of his protege in a way. He's, uh, you know, people describe him as, as kind of OJ's the next OJ. Mm-hmm. And she writes, we never dated, but Marcus was one of those upbeat people who'd always had a smile for me. We exchanged phone numbers and said goodbye. Not an hour later, as I relaxed in my apartment, Marcus called. He was with a friend who was in the middle of a rough divorce, he said. Did I know someone who might want to go out with him? Oh, so that's how she meets OJ. Yeah. And then she goes to his house her first warning sign is that he's like downstairs chatting her up and then this woman who apparently was like hanging around with him 
before Paula showed up, like comes and is like, where'd you disappear to, honey? And she's like, hmm, <laughs> that's weird. But then, you know, he, well, let me, let me read you. I want her to have a cute story that doesn't have red flags <laughs> in it. <laughs> she says, at one point after Marcus had quietly vanished, I winced from some shoulder pain. When I've been under stress, it seems to collect right there. Hold on, OJ said. Let me get you some mineral ice. This stuff works great for my knees. Oh, great, I thought, as OJ prepared to rub the salve in under my sleeveless silk shirt. Now he's going to try to get fresh. I made no move to stop him. Maybe I was subconsciously testing the waters to see what would happen, to see if I'd have to dust off my right hook. But OJ was a perfect gentleman. He kept massaging that one spot on my shoulder. As he talked about how alone he was, I felt comfortable and connected to him. I mean, I guess it's a story without red flags. <laughs> well, and then he immediately starts inviting her to come to Hawaii with him. Oh. And she's like, no, I'm not going to go to Hawaii with you. But then he goes to Hawaii and is calling her up from there and says, I was on the beach having margaritas with Marcus and Catherine, who's Marcus's wife, just sitting there in paradise. And now I'm locked in my hotel room on the phone with you for two and a half hours. Do you realize that? <laughs> you should be here. I don't understand why you're not here. I just can't get you out of my mind. What she does is she's like, well, let's, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not feeling super trusting right now, but like, let's keep talking on the phone. Mm -hmm. And she says that they talk every day, sometimes two or three times a day. He's smart and perceptive and interesting and interested in her and he's telling her you know of all about his version of the way that his divorce from nicole is gone which is you know in his telling very sad for him she writes as the days passed our mutual crush became a full-fledged infatuation oj and i actually got to know each other to really like each other over the phone there was a sexual tension crackling over those wires but it had a light quality physicality wasn't possible and for me that was a great relief I'd never communicated like this with a man before. OJ held nothing back. He seemed a man who had nothing to hide. How could I help trusting him? Man, it's so much sadder now that we know a lot of what he's telling her is lying. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we also know that he's the kind of person that speaks for five minutes on the phone. And you can put it down and walk away and come back. Right. You do wonder sort of how much of this is like him unburdening himself versus actually showing interest in her. But also, I don't know if he's infatuated with her. Maybe he really is interested in her. One of the things that people say about OJ and that they I feel like is something that I, I hear a lot about people who have this this kind of very public facing charisma is that, mm -hmm. you know, when he was with you, the sun was shining on you. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that I imagine that this predates his, his football career. I mean, I know it does because we've talked about how one of his hobbies as a teenager was like stealing other guys' girlfriends. Like he's always yeah. had this kind of weaponized charm. And that's always yeah. been maybe, you know, the thing that he was as, as good at as he was at, at football. Mm. And I think you just look at everything that Paula has been through and all of her yeah. interactions with men to this point and just how she used to like look at every white truck in Panama City thinking it might be her dad and all she ever mm -hmm. wanted was just some man to treat her like she was worthy of being taken care of one would imagine one would like to imagine based on how beautiful she was and how 
important she was to an industry that we think of as, as making people powerful and, and being about, right. you know, the power of the model. I think we would like to imagine that she wouldn't have been in such a state of emotional starvation, but I think that she was. And also the fact that it was over the phone, too, that it's it might not have felt as looks-based to her, that it felt like somebody really liked her as a person, which is also probably something that she's craving. Right, because, like, how many experiences has she had of that? And just... Yeah. And like she's saying, you know, she's never connected with a man like that before. I mean, that mm. that doesn't mean that what she felt wasn't real. It just means that she had such yeah. low expectations. Yeah. That's my Paula material for now. Oh, that's it? Yeah. So we've... Uh... <laughs> I like that we've gotten to the start of the Bronco chase, yeah. but we haven't finished it yet. Yeah, we said we'd get to it. We didn't say we'd finish it. <laughs> it's also, I mean, it's funny because we keep saying this phrase, but like, I feel like chase is kind of a misnomer. It was really more of a motorcade. Yeah, right? it was going like 30 miles an hour, right? From the time that, that OJ was detected inside the car, like the, he wasn't being chased. He was more being followed. Yeah. But yeah, yeah we're, we're leaving Paula watching CNN, trying to telepathically <laughs> project herself into the back of, of the white Bronco to keep OJ safe. Hmm. And apparently it worked. I guess so. <laughs> I don't know, but I guess we'll find out. I think people know that he survived that uh... day. Mike... I really appreciate your commitment to, to not spoiling anything, but I think we can say <laughs> with certainty <laughs> yes, that OJ made it. Okay, so what, what are, who are we talking about next time? Uh, we're going back to Marsha. Oh, we're going back to Marsha next time? Mm-hmm. Yay! What are you excited uh, to learn about? Yeah, I want to hear about Marsha's wall. I want to hear about Marsha's divorce. I want to hear about Marsha's kids and Marsha's family and how she survives as this trial becomes a trial. Thank you for wanting to know about Marsha's wall. <laughs> Just to add to the anger at a more than 20-year-old Entertainment Weekly review, mm-hmm. one of the other phrases that stuck out to me when I was editing that episode was that in that review of Paula's book, they said that she recites the pedestrian details of her life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah what the fuck is that about? <laughs> dated Dolph Lundgren so who cares we've all been like a teenage model on our own in Paris (laughs) France being assaulted by the guy who was supposed to take care of us and like running out into the street at 17 years old yes being rescued by Roman Polanski I know it's like Uh, uh. I'm sorry like why do we have to argue that Paula's life isn't interesting or that yeah no one should hear about it like I feel very edified from having yes read this book. I also think nobody's life is pedestrian. That's like a mean way to describe anybody's life. <laughs> no one has a boring life. We're all human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know. I have, I want to close with a moral of some kind, but like, I guess like don't call anyone's life pedestrian is a pretty good one. Yeah. And when you think somebody's life sounds pedestrian, imagine Dolly Parton doing it. <laughs> there it there is. It is. <laughs> <laughs>